Hello, and welcome to the WiseCast. I'm Max Reve, co-founder and CEO of WiseMonkey. In the spirit of sharing wisdom, we interview founders, leaders, and creative thinkers about why they pursue their passion, what challenges they've overcome, and what lies ahead in their path. We hope that you can learn from all these experienced people with their unique stories and see how you can apply some of these learnings in your own life. Today, we're speaking with Mauricio Lozano, the founder of Faculty Brewing. Mauricio is a Mexican expat living here in Vancouver since 2010. He has successfully created a critically acclaimed brewery in the sought-after neighborhood of Mount Pleasant, but it hasn't come without its hurdles. Listen in and enjoy his story. Mao's fine. Mao? Okay. So, who are you and what do you do? Well, it's Mauricio. I am the owner and operator of a faculty brewing company and I am also a part-time instructor at BCIT. What's your favorite thing about Vancouver? The size and the scale, uh, its proximity to um, the ocean and nature, um, almost like being in the middle of nowhere, and how easy it is to get away from uh, the city to play in, in, in the wild, and also how diverse it is. Like I've never, I've always had an accent and a, and a hard to spell name and last name, and I never really felt a foreigner. I've been here 10 years and I think everybody has a story, an accent, and a weird background. So um, in that way, it's very inclusive. Kista, what do you miss most about home? You always have that, those connections you made when you were a kid, like, you know, family, friends, um, traditions that are going to be impossible to replicate. And as much as I can, I, I just go back home and visit them. Like, um, I mean, my friends have maybe come visit me once, twice, the ones that have never come. But like, you know, those close friends that I made when I was like, you know, from seven years old until like my 20s that are like the biggest bonds you make, they're still in Mexico. So I still go back to see them and, 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 and bond with them. Nice. What is a specific tool that you cannot live without? It could be hardware or software. I have a Leatherman right here on my belt <laughs> that I carry everywhere. And I have to remember to take care of my belt when I go to the stadium. I've lost 32. <laughs> Leave them there when you have to check in and put them on an airport. Um, I don't know. I'm just very practical. I'm, I'm the one who jumps into fixing things and the solution. Like, you know, you always need a scissors, you need stairs. I also always carry a pen in my pocket because you <laughs> always need a pen for in the plane. You need to fill the immigration forms and everybody scrambles for a pen. Like, I think I always have like a Leatherman and a pen. <laughs> and um, yeah, I'm the guy who like, you need to open an envelope, you need a scissors, something breaks, a screwdriver, like I'm, I'm hands on. I knew you were going to answer that question with, with the Leatherman. Um, I've actually lost a few Leathermans myself at airports, which really sucks. Um, a couple more questions to the rapid fire. So actually, we'll just do one more because the last one's a little bit too big. Um, what's your favorite musical artist at the moment? That's a funny one. I just went to a Cat Empire gig, so I've been listening to them a lot. What's it called? The Cat Empire. The Cat Empire. The Cat okay. Empire. It's a band that got big in 2003, 2005. They're Australian, but they're very Latin music influence. Um, I mean, I listen to every cool. kind of music and all kinds, but these last, if you ask me what's the biggest, most played thing on Spotify, right now it would be them. And well, my shameless plug, my brother, I listen to my brother a lot too. No like, way. Yeah. And I, and I kind of like showcase him a lot too. So um, yeah, I listen a lot to him. He has pretty nice, neat songs. Very cool. So let's jump into your story and kind of what brought you to Vancouver. And, and you've been through a lot of different stages in your life from what I've seen. 
um, from what I understand. So now you're a brewer, but what got you into beverage in general and, and wh- how did that happen in Mexico? I, I think beverage, if we have to classify it as a food, what got me into beer and beverages is mainly food. I've always liked cooking and eating and, and that related. But how I got to where I am in terms of like beverages, it goes all the way back until I'm going to say 2000, 1995, 1996, 97. So my, my grandma uh, passed away. So that's my mom's mother. And she had an amazing uh, salad dressing recipe that everybody asked my mom uh, to share it. Then uh, my younger brother was like, mom, just don't share it. We should make it and sell it. And that was like maybe his idea or his vision. And he started just, you know, kind of like making it and selling it. But my older brother, my younger brother were really into selling it. I mean, my older brother was the only one who drive at a time. So he would be the one doing all the deliveries. And I was the one who liked to cook. So I was the one making it. And that really got me into food science and understanding the emulsions. And, you know, I was about to finish um, high school and I needed to choose what career are you going to go for. And back then my family had a farm, like a pig farm. And I wanted to go maybe into agronomy, you know, because of the farm. My dad was in meat science. I was a butcher. So I felt like, well, maybe food science because of it. But the salad dressing, understanding that really got me into food science. So I got into food (laughs) science and I did my year abroad. um, Well, I studied in Mexico and I did my year abroad in uh, Leeds University in the UK. And that's when I found about beer and fell in love with beer and everything beer related. I took a course called Traditional Alcoholic Beverages. I learned about cascales and, you know, all the fermentation. And we went to the Tetley's Brewery and Boddington and Black Sheep, and I was fascinated by it. So then I went back to Mexico uh, after that year abroad. Um, my girlfriend at the time, Alicia, who's my wife now, um, she did a year abroad in Spain. Uh, she's an architect. We came back to Mexico in 2006, and the violence in Mexico started to escalate a bit. The war against narco, that's exactly the election where, like, Calderon got elected. And he kind of, like, maybe you know, stole the election from the other guy. So the other guy made a big riot and right. it was a very unstable thing. So I felt we just came from living abroad. It was beautiful. And we said like, let's just go abroad again, right? Like Alicia really had that drive. Like, let's go outside again. And we applied to many universities all over North America, mainly Canada, because I had the facility to come to Canada because of my uh, mom's family side of the background. They were from Quebec, so I had a passport. It was easier for me to oh, do nice. the, the immigration. And the, the what happens was, we were both accepted in UBC and we both got scholarships for UBC. So I felt I was gonna do like a year abroad or a master's somewhere. And suddenly we're both um, accepted with scholarships at UBC. So it was like, I guess we're going to Vancouver. So we got married and we ended up in Vancouver. And just fast forward 10 years later is now, uh, and I'm running a brewery with a food science degree, yeah. (laughs) So it started with, La Vinigreta de Grandma. La Vinigreta de Grandma, exactly, <laughs> exactly. I'm looking at your LinkedIn. That's how I know. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I had to, I had to do a bit of research. So, uh, so that's interesting. So, is grandmother yeah, grandma's recipe that gets you fired up about about food in general? Mm-hmm. Um, and then you moved on to I'm, this is still in Mexico. You're doing like an electrolyte water thing. Yeah, so that was a, a fun project. I was just graduating from my degree, and it was a group like an investment group that they were looking to bottle, like to do a, a fancy water. Right, like like you no, know, like a like a Nivian or like a Fiji water, and well, I was a food scientist, and through like family, you know, friends and stuff, they hit me and said like, okay, um, will you help us with this project? The challenge is in Mexico, water rights are very unique, um, and the legislation was very hard to go to a 
spring. Like in, in, I don't know, I guess in other parts of the world, you can bottle direct from the spring and do it. But here is like a federal thing and the spring feeds whatever a village. So yeah, you couldn't just go and bottle it. So that was a bit the food, food scientist in me uh, suggested like, we can replicate any water, you know, like we can, you want the water to taste like this, let's just do a, a chemical analysis of this yeah. water and let's just replicate it. I mean, don't call it that specific bottle from source, but you can mineralize the water. So basically reverse osmosis, get pure water, add exactly same minerals, get the same spring-like uh, component. And the idea was pretty neat, but then it was 2008 and the markets crashed and these guys are like, we're not oh, doing man. this. So that's exactly when I came for my master's. That was that was my 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 job from the get go from graduating uh, right. university. So you got your master's, you you went to UBC, and then you jumped into a a, a job at Haines Celestial, yes. which is for people that don't know, Haines Celestial is an absolutely massive uh, conglomerate that owns a lot of food and beverage brands, including cosmetics, etc. And it must have been kind of crazy to go from like grandma's vinaigrette yeah. to uh, another small kind of startup company in Mexico to now you're part of Hain Celestial Group, which is absolutely massive. And I guess um, you go for that dream. So I come here to do a master's degree and sometimes, you know, maybe I'm leaving the dream behind of like, I'm going to go back home and, you know, grow like a, have a salad dressing empire. I don't know. A lot of times you feel <laughs> you need to work for a large company. That's kind of like the textbook. Um, you know, you do your degree, you work for a big company, you learn about systems and places and and um, I stumbled upon it. I, I wasn't vegetarian at all. My family deals with meat and pigs. And I also it was weird for me trying to explore like working for a vegetarian company because I was working for the Eves Veggie Cuisine uh, oh, brand specifically. Okay, so you're working with Eves. Eves, yeah. Eves just a quick quick background for people. Eves is a, another local brand that started uh, a few decades ago now. And they sold to... Hain Celestial. Hain Celestial, which I think was also owning Gardein at the time. I can't remember. No, so I think Eves Pod is a celebrity and please Google him. He is yeah. he is a very, very, very um, unique entrepreneur and his story is, is amazing. I think he started Eves around the 80s and around 2000-ish, he sold it to Hain Celestial. Yeah, we then, actu we've actually met him before. He's a super nice guy. There you go. So yeah. then he started Gardein after and then he sold it to somebody else. I met the person, I mean, I, I met him at, you know, talks he's given, and um, I mean, hopefully he knows of me, but, <laughs> you know, um, I guess. He probably knows your beer. Well, probably, yes, and, and through <laughs> feeding growth, obviously. I've, I've, I've connected with him uh, more recently, but the I, I worked for, once he was already part of the Hain Celestial Group, and that's how I ended up working for that super large group and really explore the boundaries of me as a food scientist. I, I grew my career there from QA, all the way to process engineer. So I, I stepped in a lot of departments and learned a lot in food manufacturing. Right. So you still went through the kind of major CPG, major consumer packaged goods company exactly. kind of platform and learned, you know, uh, what's what's the word? Like earn your stripes, I guess, in that in that space. And then eventually you jumped over to Molson. Yes. Molson Coors. Molson Coors. And so... So how did that connection happen, and how did you get there? That was really funny. I since I came to Vancouver, I think I had that urge for like the beer. I, that was already after I, I've been in England, and I'm a home brewer, <laughs> and I'm in beer already. And so working for a brewery is still like a big itch I have now. I stumble upon Hain Celestial to be honest, because in my master's degree I was able to do a practicum, and coming from the food engineering background, I was very well versed in pasteurization and all the mathematical modeling of bacterial uh, bacterial killing rates. And to date, I still teach that. I mean, that's a course I teach food process systems and is calculating pasteurization and dehydration rates and all that was part of my career part. But 
I did my project for Hain Celestial, and as I was finishing my project, there was a mat leave, and I applied to get the contract for the mat leave, and that was my QA job. And when the mat leave that I was going for expired, I became process technician, and take, suddenly my career is growing in, in Hain Celestial, but I still have this passion for beer I haven't fulfilled. You know, I mean, it, technically my goal of like what I felt I wanted to get to, back then, I, then I still didn't know I wanted to have a, a brewery. I wanted to have my own business and it was going to be salad dressing in Mexico. It was still right. going to grow grandma's recipe. But you still love beer in the background. I still love beer in the background. I still homebrew. So I have this urge and you know how like everything happens to, I guess, to connections. I had, I reconnected with a friend. Let, let's, let's call it this way. So long story short, Alicia is an architect from Mexico and had a roommate and her, well, housemate and her housemate's twin I stumbled upon him in Vancouver. And so I have these, I ran into him in the SkyTrain and, and, and well, we connected and we become friends. We start playing the same soccer team. And then when they're having beers, he's like, I work for Molson. And I was like, you gotta be kidding me. I, <laughs> I, I will, that's a super cool job. Like, I'm, I mean, just, just, you know, if there's ever an opportunity, let me know. What happens is he gets a promotion. He's like, if you want to, my job is open. I could recommend you to apply. And well, when you recommend somebody and gets a job in a large company, you get like a, like a bonus, right? For for finding bonus. Oh yeah. So finder's fee. Finder's fee. So yeah. he he was interested. Like you should apply. You're pretty good. I'm sure you're gonna get it, and I can recommend you and put your name forward. So like, okay, let's do it. Hit me up, and I did, and I apply, and the most opportunity happened, and so left in Celestial, which at that time I had a really good position. I was pretty happy how things were going, but like you know, here I am now working finally in a brewery in world-class manufacturing and dealing with systems and documentation and, and processes and SOPs and things I really like about standardizing and optimizing. And, you know, my career was really moving that way. What ends up happening is as I'm in Molson, um, Hain went through a bit of a restructure and the plant manager then retired and then the, the uh, manufacturing uh, director actually ended up going to Molson too. So they lost like a big void in their uh, plant. Uh, in that leadership, engineering, manufacturing side. So I went there back to consult for them for like a few projects, like a few inventory counts and, and a quip of, of uh, quip equipment that we bought that, you know, you know, they needed a bit of um, maybe optimization and around. Right, just like some short-term help. Yeah, and that turned into like a dinner with the director of supply chain saying like, I think you were pretty good here and you were pretty well like here. Maybe you should consider coming back. <laughs> wow. So after Molson for a year, year and a bit, uh, almost two years, I went back to Hain Celestial as a process engineer. And I loved it. And it was like, you know, you're on the hype of your career. You come back. Now I have like, you know, a well-recognized position, a comfortable salary and, and growing my career with them. But I still haven't yet satisfied the entrepreneurship mind. <laughs> and I think that's when that that back that now then when I'm in Hain at that point, that's when I'm starting to get this fear of like, maybe I'm never going to do this and I really want to do it. And that was in 2014? Yes. Roughly? Okay, roughly. let me finish that. So, so skipping past a few other things, um, you know, that were, I mean, as far as I understand, a little bit shorter term and then eventually you jumped right into being a brewer yes like for you what was that what was like the mental shift from having to really go from like what like you said like a respected position a comfortable job etc to be like well i'm just gonna throw a bunch of money at this idea and hopefully it works like what was like at the end of the day what was the thought process behind that the thought process i think Maybe three things made me do it. There was, you know, like you, I, I, I had three good reasons to jump on it. One was the the lifestyle that make your hobby your job, 
And, you know, I was coming back from work from a very long, long day and brewing beer and racking my beer. And on my weekends, I was like bottling my wine and kegging my cider and putting it on tap at home. And that was Just my hobby. Fermenting everything, hey? Yeah. And, 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 and that's exactly why, why I, that was what I did to relax. Like, why couldn't I do that every day? And that was one part. Like, you, you, I mean, we're in the millennial bandwagon of like make your hobby your job and you don't work a day of your life. You do yeah, whatever you yeah, like. So yeah. I think I, that really felt me a little bit. And and there's a quote. I'm my butcher this quote, but it, I think it's by the book The Prince Machiavellus that says it's better to do it and regret it than not do it and regret it. Right. And and I that stuck to me. Like I'd rather you know. Screwed it up big time, owe a ton of money to the bank, go back to work. I'm sure I can get a job okay again and just pay this debt back and maybe I never bought a house, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and be on my 60s, but like, at least I did it. Than being on my 60s retiring with a well, okay, paid off retirement, but having this like, I wish I would have done it. Yeah. I, I think that that is starting to eat me a little bit. And also <laughs> the lifestyle piece. Like, I mean, technically, even though you have a good opportunity, like, yeah, it's pretty routine. It's not your dream. You're working for somebody. The, you know, it's, you're always a piece of a big engine, and maybe I don't know. That could that could be a call it selfish, call it vision, call it something. But it's like I wanted to get a shot to my dream, and the second piece was opportunity. Uh, before 2012, uh, in Vancouver, uh, breweries were not allowed to have tasting rooms. So there was a bigger beer culture in Victoria or in Seattle or in Oregon, but Vancouver was pretty lagging behind. That launched in 2012 and suddenly boom like p49 powell street 33 acres brasnick and you see that it's like oh my god i i could do this like i saw the opportunity of like this is where an artificially undersupplied market is starting to finally boom right this is allowed now and when you have a tasting room you hit an economical mechanism that a brewery couldn't hit without the, the tasting room like the margins are so low on packaged beer that you need to have such a large facility just to yeah. make it work. You have to be instantly scaled. Exactly. Yeah, that's that, the hard with the part. tasting room, you have this really nice high margin revenue, which is customers coming at you, which is other big deals. I'm not from here. I don't have connections or uncles to sell them beer or to connect me to. So if the customer <laughs> comes to me, that's solving that big void about like as long as I have good product, people can come into it. Yeah, and they can always try. It. And with the tasting room, you can really set your own brand up exactly. for what you actually stand for and you don't have to try to fight on like a on a on a margin shelf. distributors um, yeah. listing fees you know, exactly the whole consumer good problem now the third part was just i felt i had the concept that could work so i mean you have the the the, the lifestyle you want to get you also see the opportunity but like there's something has not, not just people will come because oh you have a brewery that i'm gonna go for all through my homebrewing life, I've always had friends from my soccer team, my neighbors, my stuff that maybe were not really into beer. And me trying to bring them all my homebrews and trying to get them into beer, I think I really developed these. Um, well, I mean, also, I, I've always, I, I like teaching in academia and, you know, having a master's degree and I teach part-time at BCIT. That educational piece was always part of it. And I was always part of, like, trying to, like, convince them and educate them into why you should have this IPA and why it was better with food. So I think my concept of the brewery about... One, the open sourceness by by working a lot with homebrewers, sharing recipes, but also making very approachable and being able to, you know, get people into drinking craft beer from like somebody that will just have a whatever, a PBR, and then switch to wine for dinner because it's more sophisticated. And being able to, you know, give them enough knowledge so that make the choice they feel is better for them. But they, they're choosing one over the other because now they know both. So kind of like your choice comes with knowledge first. And that way of like numbering the beers for 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 um, 
for easy identification instead of like just naming them like weird numbers. Like our our easiest beer is 101, like a very easy course. And then the numbering keeps increasing as the beer gets more complex. Yeah, that makes sense. So someone that is not into beer and doesn't know what an IPA is or a half of Eisen, okay, look at the numbering. If you feel like a 100-level beer, that's an easy drinking. That's a 400-level beer, more complex. That's a 600, 700. Maybe don't go there if you're new to beer. And that concept and the open sourceness and stuff click very well with many. As I was trying to to explain, like, you know, the, 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 the faculty brewing concept and you put it with, I want this hobby and there's this opportunity on the market. Now I have a three three uh, steps tool or something where I can, this can have a ground now, right? There's a market opportunity. I have an idea that can work and I really want to do this. So right. I think the three things line up at the right time that I was able to work around investments and bank loans and yeah, just, so just just be able to jump. Maybe the fourth part is, is uh, or maybe this goes back to the third one, is just the opportunity in terms of the timing. Yes. Because like you said, like if you're the one that has to kind of be a purveyor of education in craft beer, you know, doing it right when the legislation opens up to actually have a lot of craft beer available is pretty damn good timing. It was that good timing. <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe uh, I mean, had I done it, and also, the, I mean, other opportunity timings, like it's easy to, to look backwards. Like I was still able to secure a lease you know, under $30 a square for a year. I was able to get into Mount Pleasant. I was able, to, there was so many other yeah. factors that um, just lined up well. Like, I mean, would I do it right now? But right now, if I haven't done it then and I'm doing it, just starting it right now, it would have been a completely different concept because, well, one, there's a lot more breweries now, obviously. There's a lot less real estate. Um, mm -hmm. There's a lot more beer knowledge then. So uh, that concept is not as relevant as it was when right. it started. But I think you have a, the the design thinking behind your your communication makes a lot of sense yes in this in the sense of having that kind of scale which is really cool because when people walk in like oh i don't know how bitter or how this or how that or whatever it may be that just gives you like the kind of clear ladder you know yes and it's kind of like i mean if you're new to craft beer start with us and once you're well versed go elsewhere like i mean keep experimenting but don't get hit in the face by going to a brewery not knowing what's a stout and what's water what's have a vice in and you have this awkward experience about like you know it's awkward when you it's like going to a, a, a restaurant where you don't know what's on the menu so you don't know what you're going to order and it's going to be good or bad and it's uncomfortable maybe yeah. you don't want to go back because of not making it easy and approachable so we took this Edge, and then we took both ends of the of the of the beer drinking spectrum. In my opinion, we took the people that were getting into beer and people that were well versed into beer that really liked the open source and the discussion happening also came into it. So I tackled both ends of the spectrum, and that worked quite well in terms of the area where we are and the demographic that comes to us worked quite well. Right. So I have I have another question now. Um, now that you're, you know, obviously getting set up and everything wasn't necessarily easy. How how long? <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know, everyone has the story of like, oh, well, we've been we've been in business for whatever five years, but even to get in business, it took us three years. Mm -hmm. So for you, how long was that process from kind of start to, or let's say the very beginning of the concept to today? Like, how long has that kind of been in the works? Wow. Um, I mean, I, I joke about it when I give like talks for like, oh, entrepreneurs and around. Um, this was my fourth attempt. There's also a quote, I don't know by <laughs> whom, that says, uh, you you don't fail until you give up. So you know how it's like third time's a charm? Well, for mine was fourth. Oh, so 2011, when I was in Molson, I, I, I that's when I was like, oh my God, I can figure this out. It was before the 2012 curve. And we were, I was actually with some friends um, that I used to homebrew with. Actually, uh, one of my best friends who got me into really my homebrew setup when I moved to Vancouver 
right? Like I understand beer quite well and did beer in the lab, but I really got homebrewing because of him. And we had an idea of like, let's do a cidery. This, you know, there's not much cideries. We really like making cider, good ciders. But then we, we started running the math and trying to get the business plan going and it didn't have enough traction and we couldn't really make the math work to justify, let's jump into this. Like the scooter jobs for like whatever margins that was when I work. So that was the very first like, um, okay, well, attempt one didn't work and we, we kind of like everybody kept their own thing. Attempt two was with uh, other friends we're used to, well, homebrewing friends and around. We felt like, let's make it a co-op and it's going to be like a beer lab. And we even had like a first like launch party to see people interest and putting it around. And the funny thing for that part is even though it didn't work, we couldn't make it work. Almost everybody from that group ended up being on the beer industry, either with an importing, importing company or a brewery or as a brewer, like almost everybody from that group had they, they we wanted to do it. Maybe yeah. that was 2012. You just ended up somewhere else in the end. Exactly. Exactly. Then um, that was, well, attempt number two. Then uh, by then I was a little bit down. It didn't work. I didn't know. I guess whatever. And what happened was I was at a dinner uh, with some friend. I have a friend that has a uh, rents a house in, in kids and has this beautiful plum tree. And he didn't know what to do with so many plums. So we harvest them and make them wine. And then the next year, he's making um, a dinner, and we're drinking the plum wine from last year, and we're having plums from the tree, a beautiful dinner on the plum tree. And a guest on that dinner, um, she's super interested in like, oh, my God, you make this wine. You know about fermentation. You work for Molson. And she really wanted to open a brewery, and she was just she got all the business side, but she didn't have any of the technical side. Right. So we then tried together to do a project. And we put up, that one went pretty far in terms of the business plan, in, in applying for loans, in applying for investment. But I was on a catch-22. And this is a catch-22 that a lot of people trying to open retail will face. One is you have an idea and a concept and investors that are interested, but you don't have the money in your hands. No one will just give you the money without something solid. But then you're looking for a building. And in Vancouver, you find a building, you get the deposit right now, otherwise somebody else give it, and that's pretty much it. So you're in this like, okay, investors, I need to open a brewery. Where is it going to be? Well, maybe around here, maybe around here. It depends what I find. Yeah, it's it's the chicken and the egg problem. We've had that many times. <laughs> With every single thing, like right? So yeah. And then you see a building, and you love it, and then by the time you try to pull it off, then the investor already, and then it's an investor, well, I just bought a boat, so I'm not going to invest anymore. I'm going to go do this. <laughs> you, 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 uh, that was putting it through. What ends up happening is um, she got accepted into London School of Economics, moved to London. We shake hands. We said, like, well, whatever does, whatever project, we're parting our ways. And that was, I'm going to say, 2013 So this is this is always obviously while you're still working. Of course. Yeah. I mean, you have yeah. the urge. I'm trying. But again, what, what, it's an evening having beers at a friend's place pulling business plans. Yeah. You know that? That's still totally like the dream is happening. What um, made the main click for me was... Um, I got. I wanted to then experience what's a startup, like what to work at a startup. So when I left Hain, I actually worked for Nectar Juicery at the very early stages. And uh, Tori was amazingly driven and put it, but I think the, the food science manufacturing background was missing, and I got hired to work for them for the first um, four or five months, maybe, maybe June all the way till November-ish. And that's when I realized, like, oh, my God, like I can totally – do it. Like I, I can see how easy, you know, someone really jumps into a business idea and puts it and it's really drive what will make it happen. Right? Like I mean, here you have this amazing usually happening with all this holistic knowledge about how food cures, but really low manufacturing background. Right. And they're creating this amazing brand and product. And I was like, 
maybe I'm lacking the business side, but I do have the manufacturing side. And so I, when I part ways with Nectar was with the aims, like I really wanna jump into this business right. opportunity. So what I needed was time and headspace. So I quit Nectar to, to kind of like have a couple months working at a coffee shop and just working on my business plan. And it was really Alicia who, who drove it. Alicia found the building and we realized we could afford this building with our own cash flow. So I put the rent without knowing, I just signed six years and here you go. Now I have a building. Wow. <laughs> right? That's crazy. That, that, that was my crazy move. And then yeah. what happens was now I have a building and then guess what? Now I'm able to secure a loan. Now I'm able to get investment. Yeah. Now I'm able. To, so we just broke the catch 22. It's, like, it's the domino effect. Once you get that first thing and then yeah. all of a sudden it kind of starts to open up, but that is a, uh, takes major guts to just sign but a I mean, six-year lease. I didn't know about Kickstarter. I didn't know about things you could have yeah, done differently. Yeah. Like, literally, it was like, you know, I have about three months of rent and savings. Right. I think I can pay this rent. And if it doesn't work, I'll sublet it. I'll make a something way, out yeah. of it. Make it an office. We felt we like the location. Or, hey, you just break the lease. You put exit strategies. You pay the landlord. You yeah. lose a bit of money. But for us, that was the big, riskiest move with it. We just took a lease. And knowing, well, I, I mean, obviously we did, our due diligence was like literally two days yeah. of like working on business plans and adjusting and at least as an architect, how much tanks and how much the rule would work and putting it through. And suddenly, okay, it looks like he can make money, put the lease. So, <laughs> I mean, you did well because the location is unreal. Well, we were, uh, so that we were was... lucky to secure that building, of course, yeah. but literally like when I saw the building, it was like looking at an apartment in Vancouver. It was three of us looking at the building. So the landlord was like yeah, set up a date yeah. and it was me and it was two more people looking at the, so at the building at the same time. Whoever shows up with a briefcase full of cash gets the place. Well, it's whoever puts less conditions. <laughs> yeah, so whoever accepts a triple net and business as ease and you pay all the maintenance and I'm just gonna charge my rent, you pay all the property tax, whoever and doesn't negotiate the price down gets it. And I think <laughs> I made the, the least effort offer to the landlord and that's why yeah, I, I took it. The path of least resistance for them, hey? Well, I mean, yeah, that's like Vancouver when you have about a million people looking for one place. All of a sudden, you know, it gets really easy to sell. <laughs> of course. Of course. I mean, I think this is a, a, a market that now is even harder, but it, 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 even then was a market that the landlord or the owner of the building had a lot of power because it was very desirable. And yes, the, the neighborhood turned into something amazing. So yeah. maybe, maybe that was a... A risk we took, a very bold risk, but um, in a way, it's easy to look backwards and say, like, that was a good call. Yeah. I mean, it's still fairly calculated in that sense. Um, so now that you're, you know, let's, in that in that state of mind, so now you've got your space mm -hmm. over, so how, how many years ago, how many years ago was that? So that would be maybe the, from the cider idea, that was maybe 2011 to the actual getting the building, that was 2015. Okay. So it's only been about just over four years four now. Years. And in those four years for you what like what was the number one challenge that you've kind of either it could be like a short-term thing that you had to like really overcome or or like what was the number one challenge that was even recurring that you still had to be like oh my god okay let's just get this done and get through this what has been like the biggest pain point in those four years um, business related um, or just for me as a person? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think business-related is interesting, but also I think what's more interesting is the personal side of things because, you know, yeah. business is like a lot of it ends up being numbers and paperwork. Yeah, exactly. So that's Well, I mean, um, part of the story with me is uh, my mom died in 2005 uh, before I went uh, to um, uh, England and then moved back. So 
I think my dad alone in Mexico starting to date again, and my brothers also abroad. My brother was, one brother was living in Houston, another one was living in Boston. I'm here in Vancouver, my dad in Puebla. That, that hurts me. I, I think uh, then I was really considering going back to Mexico. Like, I think that, that, that was a little yeah. bit thing. Like, you're still living abroad. You're not really from here. You don't have much family. Everybody leaves. All your friends leave. You know, so <laughs> I think I think that was a big recurring thing about, like, I didn't know, like, am I going to stay or not? I think um, now with the business, of course I'm staying. I mean, that, that secures it and makes it legit and, and, and putting it through. But that was a question that I always had. And dealing with family and distance and, you know, I mean, we're in a really well, good position now. But, I mean, I cannot reflect back how hard it was on me. My dad starting to start a relationship and dating. And I was, like, very, very, like, emotional about that like and against it at the beginning and it's hard and yeah, all the process of accepting that like that was a big process for me now we're like I'm super good friends with her and like he's super happy and I'm super happy they're together and it comes along but I think that was a big a big uh, part of me that um, I I putting it through around and then the other part is like just living on, on your own like I think something I, I, I always had an issue is you don't learn about how to manage your finances ever until you're doing on your own like I, I honestly until I don't you know learn how. the hard way everybody <laughs> learns the hard way like oh my god I can I know a lot of like geography and thing and things from like high school that I, I still remember that like it used to get like oh I could have maybe not learned that or that was useless but I do feel younger in life you need to learn about good debt bad debt like I wish for example I would have the knowledge or the 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 vision we I was perfectly well employed with a decent job 2010, 2011, same with Alicia. We, we could have easily afford an apartment then. And we just got into bigger apartments and rented for more money and didn't have any savings. And we never learned about that. We just learned the hard way when we're like, oh my God, we're in our 30s. We have shit ton of debt. <laughs> you know, like that, that's the way we learn it. Dude, it's it was, a common story, man. Yeah. It's a common story, especially in the city because rent just basically went triple in like the span of 10 years or less. Exactly. So, um, so that's that's the tough that's a tough situation to be in when you know that you could have something that is kind of starting and you almost can't leave yet and your family is also abroad and you feel like you can go there and help and support at the same time of and course. and that kind of separation must be a bit of a mental challenge obviously. Of course, and also think about that I've always had this opportunity to go back and just grow the salad dressing. You know, like I mean, <laughs> I always have this thing like I already have a master's in food science, I already work for like a large food company. Like I have all the I feel like I have all the skills and the opportunity and go, you know, like I've right. always had this I, I'm, I'm I'm it's a choice not to jump on that opportunity. Do you ever think you would do like a like your retirement project would be like a, a new brewery in no, Mexico? I don't know. I, I think my retirement project, I, I'm always being very tied up to academia. I really like it. I think my retirement is going to be getting more into teaching. Oh, wow, I, okay. I, I want to keep this part I'm teaching going for 20 more years. Teach people then, how to do plumb wine? Well, probably, probably. <laughs> but I really, I, I'm, I'm really liking like the teaching on the science side. And, and I mean, the Faculty of Health Science at BCIT. But when you are in academia, you're also on the top edge knowledge all the time because you're reading scientific journals to updating all your examples. So I'm actually comfortable how well versed I am on remember, you know, like everybody can't remember things from like university and I am teaching that I'm, I'm actually well versed on it. And that, I just like it. I just like to be updated. I just like to be, you know, what's the newest trending food processing because that's something that I'm involved in. I think I really like that. Like I, I, my mom was always involved in, in, in academia and research and maybe that's a side that I want to explore a little bit more as well so maybe my retirement will be keep the brewery going keep the brewery growing and around but maybe it's going to be more like doing sabbaticals like maybe I go for a sabbatical and teach in Mexico maybe I go for a sabbatical and teach in 
I don't know, Denmark or somewhere. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Get some travel out of it. Do you find that working with students also gives you kind of like a fresh energy as well? Yeah. Yeah. And, and well, I mean, also like give me top edge. It's really funny. I'm from my staff. I'm one of the older ones and I'm the one teaching like 24 year olds the latest way of using Google Docs and Excel <laughs> really? and stuff. Like you, you, you think like a 24 year old should be telling I me. I guess, yeah. And I'm the one to like, no, this is how you do it on Excel. This is how you get this thing, no, from Google Docs to think this is how you create the PDF backwards. Like I'm the one who is like top notch. <laughs> and I think I'm pretty happy with with um, just keeping being updated. I mean, that's something I've admired. Like I think my dad is the classic dad who might ask you for help with a computer, but oh my God, he, Skypes and emails and since he's up pretty well, right? And and I've always been. I want to keep you know not being the one who like. Can you help me to archive yeah. the file? Like everybody has a story with a parent, and I never had it. Like my parents were. My dad was perfect with the computer all his life. That I was like, huh? Maybe I want to keep on that edge of of, of knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> I remember uh, when I was studying in France when we were starting Wise Monkey. I would have my dad email me or rather call me and be like, "Hey, my Outlook isn't working. I'm like, help me out." I'm like, "I'm literally in a nine-hour time difference, like oh time God. zone right now. I, I need to go help. You I don't know if I can yeah. help you with your Outlook right now." I mean, I might have like a silly one about like, I mean, for example, my phone app is like something a little more complex about like he might ask me something really complex about the phone. Like, why is he logging me out of my apps all the time? And Fair like, enough. But well, he's got literacy, which, oh is, God, yeah. which like is kind of rare. And files and things and stuff. Like, I think I think that's an excellent one. My mom, because she was in university all the time, she was the one who, like, helped me getting my first email when I was 12. You know, like, cool. they were open. Top- so I think that's where the academia for me has been always um, fascinating. One is the educational piece. Like, you know, a lot of the students look up to you, which is amazing. I mean, I'm, I'm, it's actually compelling to see, like, someone is, like, looking up to us and, like, you know, hearing us and, and, and do it. But also, so you're affecting their lives in one way, but also, like, it is you are, you know, in the full discussion into what's, you know, the newest trend and how things mm-hmm. have, have, have evolved. And, you know, I think I think being, it's it just like that, that knowledge piece is we're so privileged in, in to being this era where there's so much information and around out there that it's just so nice to have access to it and actually use it. So, when you when you went through that period where you were here in Vancouver and you were kind of having, I don't want to say doubts or maybe like second thoughts, what was like the mental exercise that you had to go through to really kind of force yourself to stay dedicated to creating faculty and, and getting through to the end of it and at least seeing it, you know, now get set up and run? It's really funny. I think I procrastinated the decision to move back and I was always looking for a reason not to move back. Oh, really? You know, like I think I think it's really funny. Like when you don't want, you realize later that that's what you wanted. But like you know, like I, I want to go there, but I'm want to do this first. And maybe I'm gonna, maybe you don't want to do that. You know. So for us, we always start about like, okay, we finish our degrees and we go. Okay, well maybe we maybe we're until Elizabeth gets a PR. So Alicia, my wife, was going through the PR process. Well, when you get the PR, maybe maybe that's it. PR is a permanent, permanent residence. residence. Permanent yeah. residence. And then like, okay, well maybe until you become a citizen. And in between all those waitings, the very happened. You know, like like I think I think you, we were always looking for like a reason to so like, well, maybe we just wait until we're all citizens and then that's forever. And then yeah. we just go back to Mexico. We don't lose the passport. It's perfect. And the brewery happened exactly in between those, in between the, the we got the PR. Oh, my God, just two more years for becoming right. a citizen. Let's just let's just do this. And in the meantime, you get, you know, that's how I got into into the brewery. I think lo- looking backwards, it was pretty much just like maybe we didn't want to go back. So it was more just like a natural, you know, holistic feeling for you. It wasn't necessarily something that you kind of had to like 
you know, actively think of every single day. It just kind of happened on its own. Because we were not anchored. We, we, we didn't have a mortgage. We didn't have kids to go to school. I mean, whatever credit card that we had, we can pay from whatever. Like, for us, literally, it was just quit your job and pack your apartment. Like, it was not nothing like, oh, my God, I got to sell this thing, my RSPs. Right. It, was, it was a very easy move. We were still super mobile. I mean, maybe looking back, I mean, maybe we could have lived elsewhere in the world and do more traveling. And we were, you know, maybe that's how the brewery is going to anchor us more to Vancouver now. Now it's impossible for me to be that mobile, obviously. Yeah, of course. But, um, yeah, it is one of those talks about, like, huh, now I'm anchored. But when I wasn't anchored, I was anchoring myself, maybe. Just subconsciously. Subconsciously, yeah. Maybe because you just like Vancouver so much. Well, I like I like the, the lifestyle, the part. Like, I mean, I've always, you know, cycled over the place. I always love that part and how walkable. And, you know, even when I was working in Hain Celestial, it was 35 kilometers away, and it would either take the SkyTrain or my bicycle. Like, I, I think you cannot do this in other uh, cities. And I think that's something I embrace a lot. And I feel healthier because I live here and right. because of the food options that you get. And I'm, I'm a lot more conscious about the environment because – I experience the environment, so you're a lot more, you know, driven to take yeah. care of it. You think about it when you are in the woods or when you're exactly. in the water, when you know about treating it exactly. Because you know we have we have pretty good access here to that. So and that keeps you. I, I think that's why since a kid, I mean, you got to take them camping and see the the the, the, the you know the outdoors. So you experience it. You love the forest and the river. So you later want to take care of them, right? If you're always in a concrete jungle, then you'd be disconnected in terms of like, well, but a plastic bag, what's going to do, right? Yeah. That was the biggest connection for us to really wrap our hands around the food supply chain was when we went to Nicaragua the first time for Wise Monkey because we see where beans are being harvested and banana and, you know, sugar cane, all these things. And you realize like, you know, even rice is, is there's some rice in Nicaragua as well. And you think of the distance that these things have to travel <laughs> to get there and how long it takes to do it and how, how hard it is to do it right. Um, so just to kind of wrap up things, um, now that faculty is running, you obviously got something really great going. Um, we created an Unreal Beer, uh, which unreal we didn't beer. even mention yet. We created this amazing Mango Party Cream Ale, basically a cream ale recipe, and we steeped our Mango Party tea in it. Um, super good. And I think we're doing a batch in April. We, we Yeah, because the goal is to scale this up. We are trying to, I mean, everything starts with a pilot. And yeah. everything starts with a test. And the test was successful. Now, you know, tweak a bit and just keep growing it. And now make it in a large scale and eventually commercialize it. I mean, yeah. that's, I think that's the idea. Well, we'll let you know when that comes out. But now that faculty is running and going, what is the kind of immediate goal for you, let's say in the next year or two years? And then beyond that, what's kind of your vision going forward with it? Like any new business, it always feels like you can wipe out any second. I mean, maybe <laughs> maybe because I am from the inside and, and you know, you see how fragile businesses are. I mean, you think like, oh my God, this can be forever. No, if we don't take care of it the way we should take care of it, it, it you know, it can wipe out. So there's a, a part about how many what percent of the businesses don't make it to three years and then don't make it to five years. So I think there's a lot of adjustments and changes and hard decisions you gotta make through the way to do it. For us, it has been to get into more revenue streams. Um, so the brewery was, as, as we explained, um, tasting room focus first. So now we're growing a wholesale division, kegs and packaged goods to sell to liquor stores and restaurants a lot more. And that is what we need to establish. Right now, we basically milk a little bit of the profits from the tasting room 
to grow um, a wholesale division. So yeah, if you're a cost accountant, you look at it like, oh my God, what are you losing money on this section to, to grow it? It's growing and it was gonna become profitable and work. So then in the long term, that's actually what it is. Like, we would like the brand to be more than just the space that it is. So the brewery is, is the, the, the faculty concept and the open source and the educational piece can live beyond it, in its tasting room. So if the city keeps developing and going and we need to change locations of the tasting room, the, the brewery will outlive the, yeah. the location. You're not immediately tied to that. Exactly. So that that is what the vision is. Maybe in the future, the brewery won't be on that location. I mean, I wish that 5, 10, 20 years, it will still be there. But if I don't take care of this, if the tasting room disappears, then I disappear. Well, the, the brewery disappears. But my point is, I think the, the vision long-term is to keep it growing on both legs retail but also wholesale and have those both balance each other so its seasonality will be different it's dependence on climate like a bad weather day the tasting room does so poorly that people go more indoors so they might more of the liquor store to stay home and you know what i mean like i think balance both um would have been so right now the the short term is let's get a pretty legit and and established wholesale part so then maybe we get a larger facility for the wholesale piece. Right. And maybe the tasting room turns into more of a retail location that doesn't have to be there. It could be maybe a beer bar elsewhere. Nice, yeah, that sounds good. Let me know when you open that up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll be there. No, that will be great. <laughs> Um, well, I think there's a lot more we can cover in probably a second podcast at this point. <laughs> and um, I just want to say thanks for coming in. No, thank you. It's always nice to to see your smiling face. Thank uh, you. Mauricio is a, a very good friend of ours, and we've actually known each other for a few years now. We met at the Feeding Growth, um, basically like a food speaker series. It's kind of more than that, though. It's like a community um, yeah, for, for uh, it's for know, progressive food businesses, yeah. and it's like an educational series to like you know, if you need knowledge in terms of like either manufacturing or commercial or marketing or you know, each workshop tackles all these aspects of a business yeah. and a lot of good established progressive food businesses. It's actually surprised how many companies have come through that now, and we were part of the very first cohort. Um, I'm gonna guess, I think three years ago, and now it's just really been taking off and you can see that the vancouver scene itself is also growing pretty fast so always happy to support other wicked new up-and-coming food companies and uh and again mauricio thanks for coming in no thank you so much all right ciao Ciao. passion takes form in many ways for mauricio it started with his grandmother's vinaigrette in mexico and eventually manifested into a growing brewery 4,000 kilometers north in vancouver bc we hope you enjoyed his journey And if you're in Vancouver, pop into his tasting room on 2nd and Ontario, as well as stay tuned for the next collaboration between Faculty Brewing and Wise Monkey. Check out the show notes for more information and leave us a review to let us know what you think. Finally, we'll leave you with the wise words of today's episode. It's better to do it and regret it than not do it and regret it, right? And and that stuck to me.